welcome back to yet another edition of Behind the Lens. I am film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online 24-7, more particularly on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I'm right here live on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the line with movers, shakers in the indie world, tent poles, composers, music, authors, screenplays. We cover it all. And today, very excited. Of course, I've got to say, I got a lot of great feedback from you guys who listened in last week and picked us up, uh, listened on iTunes after the live show. And yes, we are on iTunes. Every show is on iTunes. Every show is also on BehindTheLensOnline.net and a few other places that uh, pick us up. But a lot of feedback from last week's show. And uh, after my wonderful guest, Brian Cavallaro, and we talked about Against the Night and shooting in Holmesburg Prison in Philadelphia. Um, If you haven't seen the film, please, I highly recommend you see it, Against the Night, it is a lot of fun, a lot of great filmmaking ma- done. Uh, filmmakers out there, cinematographers, directors, will really appreciate the efforts that Brian put in and the effect created with shooting only with flashlights in a prison that has no windows and shooting at night. Um, but it's, it's a fun story. It's a fun film. And uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. But thank all of you uh, who emailed, who, and you can email us. BTL radio show at prodigy.net. Um, so we got a lot of feedback on shooting in a, Brian shooting in a prison and uh, the interest in that. Well, a show that I hope you'll also send us some feedback on is today's show. Two wonderful directors. One, direct, one of these directors I have admired for decades. He is one of the most prolific television directors out there today. You may know some of his big screen work as well. Murdered 1600. Halloween 4. Uh, what else has he done? Free Willy 2. But then, Bones. Now, all of our regular listeners over the past few years and my regular re- readers know my great affection for Bones and the wonderful David Boreanaz, who I first met uh, when he was a teenager, and our fathers uh, were working together. Our fathers were friends and worked together for almost 40 years. Uh, so I am a huge supporter of David's work, and I think a lot of his directorial expertise he picked up what, learning from Dwight Little. Dwight joins us at the half-hour mark to talk about his new film, The Last Rampage, which is... It is... <clears throat> Pun intended here, an ab- a killer. Stars Robert Patrick, Bruce Davison, John Hurd, Heather Graham, ab- uh, and Molly Quinn from Castle. Um, which Dwight Little also directed an episode or two of Castle. Uh, this is based on the true story of Gary Tyson, one of the most infamous uh, prison escapes in the history of law enforcement and uh, prison incarcerations. 1978, this massive manhunt with multiple murders. And uh, Robert Patrick plays Gary Tyson. But we're going to talk to Dwight in depth about that. Uh, the film is, in t- t- to be blunt, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, and a lot of it is not only due to performance, but James W. Clark's script based on his book that he wrote about the situation. So that'll be fun. But before we get to Dwight, we have writer, director, and former painter, artist, Vincent Sabaya uh, is with us uh, for his new film, Elizabeth Blue, which takes a very sensitive and poignant look at mental illness. Uh It's a beautiful film. Again, cinematography plays a big part. Uh, Joel Marsh, a cinematographer. And outstanding performances from Anna Schaefer as Elizabeth Blue. And a longtime favorite for many of you out there, Kathleen Quinlan. So 
Vincent will be joining us in the next few minutes. Uh, I was going to start talking about and play you some clips of my exclusive interview with Michael Cuesta, uh, an American assassin, but my sound engineer has momentarily disappeared. So uh, I'll start talking about American Assassin. Oh, and here here comes Pam. She's back with us. She's doing like triple duty today since people don't like to come into work. What can I say? Um, American Assassin, last month you heard me briefly bring it up uh, while we were still under embargo. The film opened this weekend. Embargo lifted uh, this past, last Tuesday before the film opened. This is the 21st century spy thriller. What Tom Clancy was to the 80s spy thriller, Vince Flynn, who created the character of Mitch Rapp, is to the 21st century spy thriller. And Michael Cuesta has stepped in to direct uh, a killer film. Uh, Michael Keaton has never been better. Michael Keaton just keeps getting better with age. Let's face it, every film... Once he hit Birdman, everything since then, it is just impeccable, flawless, and he just goes to, pushes the envelope further and further. Dylan O'Brien, Dylan O'Brien, last time most of us saw him, he was young teenager shooting Maze Runner. Now he is really, he is transformed into a man, and he plays the <clears throat> lead character of Mitch Rapp. Uh, also on hand is... Taylor Kitsch plays a very mysterious character named Ghost. Uh, just all around excellence. The film is produced by Nick Wexler and <clears throat> Lorenzo Di Bonaventura. Lorenzo is one of the great action producers in the business today. Nick is known for story. Uh, so the marriage is absolutely perfect. And Michael Cuesta. This is really his first entree into action. He has directed action film sequences before, but never a film that is considered an action thriller. Some of Michael's prior works have been Kill the Messenger um, or TV direction for Dexter, True Blood, Homeland, Six Feet Under. So this is an origin story that Vince Flynn has created for us. Uh, and... This is Michael's first time at BAT as an action director. So, of course, when we sat down for our exclusive interview, the first thing that I had to ask him about was the action learning curve. Uh, and we're going to hear shortly from him. And we got into a lot of detail about shooting action and what made this the right film for him to jump into uh, as an action director. Uh, so... Pam, should we, well, we have Vincent on the phone, do we not? So, okay, we're going to put Michael on hold for a minute. When we're going to bring Vincent Sabella on and talk about Elizabeth Blue. And then we will come back to American Assassin. Hopefully, you guys all know by now that I will not cut our talent off. So, depending on what happens for the hour. But, Michael's interview is will be up later today with audio included on BehindTheLensOnline.net. So check it out if we don't get back to it today. But right now, let's bring Vincent on then, Pam. So welcome, Vincent. Vincent Sabella, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am thrilled to be talking to you, especially after seeing... What a lovely and sensitive film you have made with Elizabeth Blue. Oh, thank you so much. I didn't know what to expect going into the film. I know you co-wrote it with Alfred Huffington, and you directed it. This is your first feature direction. You've done some prior shorts. After coming out yeah. of an entirely other world as an artist. I mean, this... this yes, actually. This, this is... A beautiful transition for you, and something that that is very striking to me, knowing that you are also an artist, is your visual composition of Elizabeth Blue. Yeah. All of your frames, your tone, your lighting—it is all exquisitely done. Oh, thank you so much for the compliment. Thank you, I really appreciate that. You know, to tell our audience, 
tell him what is the story behind what is the story of Elizabeth Blue and what led you to tell this story? Well, um, Elizabeth Blue is basically about um, a young woman who is recently released from a psychiatric hospital, and um, she, when she's released, she's struggling with ongoing episodes of schizophrenia. And uh, but through it all, she has the love and support of her fiance Grant that she plans on marrying. So um, she's he basically sticks with her through thick and thin, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, that's really uh, the gist without giving too much away. <laughs> yeah, because this has a lot of surprises and secrets in it that we don't want to give away. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a movie that the audience needs to pay attention to. Oh. And, uh, you know, really look for all those clues and everything. So it's... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very exciting. <laughs> well, something that you did, and, you know, there are... The issues of mental illness are treated in various ways on film, uh, be it documentaries mm-hmm. or narratives. This one, as I said, you treat this very sensitively, but you take us through the stages of dealing with the illness and treatment and the whole idea of therapy and medications. And, you know, this, I mean, it's very methodical and it's very well thought out in how you constructed this. Well, thank you so much. Um, I I think one of the reasons why it's so thought out is because I'm um, a functioning schizophrenic. I suffer from OCD, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. I, um, I basically based this film on... First of all, this was uh, this this originated from another script, mm-hmm. and I did a page one rewrite on this, and I based it on a year in 2010 when all my medications had failed, and uh, I came I put the story of Elizabeth Blue together from that year that was very very bad to me, and um, you know it, it's it's. It, it, I couldn't be happier with the way it turned out. Um, so as far as all the medications Elizabeth's on, all the hallucinations she sees, those are all my, her real, all my real hallucinations, all, all my real medications, everything that I suffered through during this very difficult year in 2010. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so it, it's, about, it's about 98% biographical. <laughs> oh, my God, Vincent, how cathartic. Was it for you? It, it, it really is. <laughs> you know, it, has it been cathartic for you to not only put your story down on paper in the form of Elizabeth Blue, but then to make the actual film? Or was that, or, or what, what, how did you feel in terms of reliving so much of this while you're making the film? Well, it, it's funny. When I went to write the script, I, um, a lot of things started to come up for me that I had forgotten because mm-hmm. I, I really put myself in a place where I really needed to remember. And, uh, you know, I think writing the script was a little bit more difficult for me than when we were actually filming. When we were actually filming, I had a step off set twice because the scenes were so realistic, realistically real. And it really, it really shook me and I, I just needed to step away so um, that was really that was really bothersome to me because I never had to lose leave my set before. But um, you know, as far as being cathartic, I mean, I, I, I it was filming Elizabeth Blue wasn't so much cathartic as uh, when I made my first short film. No, that was more cathartic for me. I think mm-hmm. because it was, that was also based on me and a suicide attempt attempt I had when I was about sixteen. So I think I went through all that before. And with this, I was just really focused on telling the story, telling it accurately, telling it 100% true, and making sure that the performances were just dead on and it was nothing over the top. And it just told mental, it showed mental illness what it really truly is. And it wasn't sugarcoated in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Well, 
you your casting is impeccable. You bring Anna Schaefer as Elizabeth. Wow. And she's brilliant. <laughs> but but then you have one climactic explosive scene in there between Kathleen Quinlan who plays Elizabeth's mother Carol and Anna yeah. as Elizabeth. Every mother daughter on the planet can relate to that scene. Oh yeah. I mean that that was fantastic filming that scene. I mean, you know, I I I don't do any rehearsals or anything and mm-hmm. they they just showed up and they just went right into it. And wow. we must have did the scene about maybe eight times and we had it. Like it was it is it was so quick and painless and it was effortless and they just nailed it. Like Kathleen Quinlan gets on set and she's like, okay, let's do this. And you're just like, okay, let's go. (laughs) Uh, uh, One, two, three, here's your mark and let's go. (laughs) How strictly did you adhere to the script then? Or did you allow for, especially in a scene like that, that is so explosive and so volatile and visceral. Do you, mm -hmm. do you, do you want them to stick to the script or do you allow for ad libbing to really capture the emotion? Yeah, well, with with anything I do, anything I write, I always tell my actors, I'm like, listen, this is what I wrote. You don't have to stick to it. If it doesn't flow off your tongue, change it to the way you would say it. Just get the same point across. I personally love surprises. I love improv. So whatever happens in the moment, those are the best moments to me. Mm-hmm. So there, there's no wrong or right when you're on my set. Like, so if you want to, if you want to do something, just do it because mm-hmm. you never know what the outcome is and you never, you never know what the beautiful surprise is going to be. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that goes, that went for everything throughout the film. You know, there was no wrong or right. It was just, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> so Now, how yeah. does, how does that work then when you're working with your cinematographer, Joel Marsh? Because I have mm-hmm. to say your framing is beautifully done. Um, the Thank light you. you keep, your tone, your visual tone is light, which is a wonderful contrast and juxtaposition to the darker notes of the thematic elements. So, uh, so I, I just see you keep the rooms light in and sparse, very Spartan in decor, mm-hmm. but tasteful. A lot of whites, natural light. Yeah. You know, was this a specific design to counter the idea of darkness, of illness, but at the same time, representing kind of a light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, absolutely. It really was. I mean, um, I mean, you, you nailed it. I mean, when I met with Joel, I mean, me and him hit it off immediately, and he knew exactly what I wanted. And I, you know, I'm very much a fan of handheld and steady cam work mm-hmm. and. Joe Marsh is, has to be the best Steadicam operator out there. I mean, he, he is so brilliant. When he, I, I swear, when he holds the camera, it's like he's holding a magic wand. So he he knew just exactly what I wanted in terms of uh, the shots, the lighting, everything. I mean, working with Joel was so effortless, and he was such a collaborator. And when I when I say I. Like I had to maybe say something to him once on set, but otherwise mm-hmm. he showed up and just knew everything that I wanted. And th- th- this entire shoot was just so effortless. The cast, the crew, everybody—they just gave a hundred and fifty percent. I mean, I I never expected anything like this. It was just amazing. But the the camera—I couldn't be more helped happier with the cinematography the camera work mm-hmm. i mean it's just i mean there were things that didn't make it into the movie that i was really upset about but you know you have to make those cuts sure <laughs> so um yeah i mean there was beautiful beautiful shots and i was like oh we have to cut this and I, it, it like it would give me a knot in my stomach i'd be like no i don't want to cut it <laughs> <laughs> well and some of the beautiful very beautiful shots that i i can attest to that are in the film you're after purchasing a Christmas tree, Elizabeth and Grant and the tree is lit up in the corner and you really the room is subdued with virtually no light, but for the light coming from the Christmas tree. 
And mm-hmm. then yeah. I don't know if you found this store or if production design stepped in here. But when Elizabeth goes into a bridal shop to look I for- found that store. Oh, <laughs> that is so, the most beautiful yeah, store. It, 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 it did not need any set decoration at all. The okay. bridal shop is located on Beverly Boulevard in Los Angeles, and it is just absolutely stunning. And it looks like a castle from the outside and the inside. You, it was everything I had envisioned when I wrote the script. It's exactly what I wrote. And when I was thinking about, oh my god, this is going to be a nightmare with with production design, they're going to have to get all these dresses and everything. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I have to, I'm like, I have to look for a practical location. I have to. Mm-hmm. And me and my producer, we just went out and I, I, I Googled a couple things. I didn't find anything. And then I was actually out um, for lunch and I was like, is that a bridal shop? And <laughs> I went in and I talked to the owner and I had my producer call and we got the shop. And it was amazing. Uh, what is the name of the bridal shop? Because they, it is so superb. I think you, they need a credit here. <laughs> they do. And I'm, I'm going to Google it while I'm on, on, on with you because I'm completely blanking <laughs> on the name right now. <laughs> but it's, it's so, And even the lighting, it has a candlelight tone to it, which, as you know, all women out there know, the two best lights... Candlelight and moonlight. So exactly, those are the best lightings. <laughs> so I mean, but I really thought you did a full set dress on that. It is that perfect for this film no. and for the dream yeah. that we that we are sure that Elizabeth wants is a perfect bride. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely amazing, Vince. But you know something else that's very amazing <laughs> with the film. Your soundtrack and your score, you have such oh, an, ec- it is very eclectic. You have tunes from, that are fresh. You've got that hard piano um, mm-hmm. that coincides with Elizabeth in the mental hospital. And yeah. you can feel, you can feel the frenzy as, as the keys are being, the piano keys are being pounded on. The mental frenzy she yeah. must be going through. But then you counter later on throughout the film with American classics and standards. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult to yeah. put this the soundtrack to, of together? No. Uh, well, to answer your question early before, though, uh, the, the bridal shop's called Claire Pettibone. <laughs> okay. It's, um, they, make, they make all the dresses there. Everything is all couture. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so it's located on Beverly Boulevard, and they were actually absolutely amazing. Now, to your question about the music, mm-hmm. um, when I wrote Elizabeth Blue, I wrote every single one of those songs into the script. I knew oh. what I wanted. I knew the sound. I wanted the music to basically go against the grain of the scene. Mm-hmm. So whatever was happening in the scene, I wanted it to basically play against it. Mm-hmm. And you know, almost give it, like, this feeling of a haunting feeling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's all, and it comes from my personal style of music that I love, all the classics mm-hmm. and, and, you know, everything that resonates with me and everything I, I, I'm drawn to. So, you know, I mean, my only concern was... Get, getting all the music, and we were so lucky, so uh, blessed to get all the music. I was going to say, you, I, 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 <laughs> as you're telling me, you're writing it into the script, and the first thing I'm thinking as you're as you're talking is, oh my god, what if the licensing had fallen through? Oh, uh, we had we almost had an issue with um, the. I don't want to say which song it was because I don't want to give anything away, but I'll, I'll say the song at the end of the movie. <gasps> <laughs> oh. That song, I won't, say, I won't say what it is, but we are the first film ever to license that song. Really? The movie's release. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> it would. So I wish I could say which, one, which song it is, but I can't. <laughs> no, but 
you telling me that and me knowing what song that is, if you didn't have that song, it would have changed the entire tone. Oh, it would have changed everything. I would have, I, I would have had to basically rewrite most of the, the, the story because yeah. I, I tied it all to that. It's all tied to it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, Vincent. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, and, you know, this, that's something I do with all my scripts. I'm, I always write the music into the script because I really, I think it helps with, the, I think everybody can get a sense of what the tone I'm going for. I think it helps the actors to know what's going to yeah. happen in the scene. I think it helps with production design. I, I think it, there's so many benefit beneficial things to writing everything into a script. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with my descriptions in my script, I tend to overwrite them. And but I do that so the actors can find the clues and and costume and and production design and and the and the, my cinematographer everybody can find the clues of what I want. I even write camera angles into the script. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, especially now when you're directing, though, that's got to come in very handy for you because it, when you know you're going to direct, you're visualizing what this is going to be as you're writing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does. So it, you know, it, no it really does. It, it, it makes everything easy for everybody. It, re- it really seriously does. And, you know, I get a lot of flack on that from my producer, Jodane, because he's like, he, he's always like, you, you, you're overriding, you're overriding, you're overriding. I'm like, yeah, but it, it, it needs to be in there. It has to be in there. We, everybody needs to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in essence, you're, you're, you're shortcutting here. Because so many directors will put together a lookbook and pass that out mm-hmm. to the crew and the department heads and all. You're you're eliminating I also did that. that too. <laughs> you're eliminating that step by in, by just placing this information within the script. Yeah, I mean, I put it in the script, but I also did create lookbooks for every single department. Like when I met my cinematographer, I gave him a complete lookbook of the color scheme I wanted mm-hmm. and the shot directions from other films and everything for costume design. It was like a Bible. It was so intense, <laughs> and it was just it was huge. And the same with production design. I mean, everything. I was I had gotten so started so well in advance to even pre-production starting that it was crazy like it was all just planned out and it just it, it was i had such an advantage because i had so much time leading up to it mm-hmm. and I, it was just very it was a well-oiled machine so now how can everybody see elizabeth blue elizabeth blue is opening on friday september 22nd in select cities um, you can get your tickets on Fandango. Mm-hmm. Uh, it opens in New York City, Los Angeles, Austin, San Francisco, Cleveland, Ohio, um, Seattle, uh, Atlanta. I'm missing. Uh, <laughs> I'm missing another Minneapolis. <laughs> okay. Oh. And um, and you can get your tickets on Fandango. Just go on and type in your city. See playing and if it is it'll come up and tell you the theater and, and, and for the, uh, you and could follow elizabeth blue on facebook on instagram and on twitter and of course for those not lucky enough to have elizabeth blue opening in their city when will we see this on vod and or dvd blu-ray well uh hopefully What's happening is we're hoping that it will expand. Mm-hmm. So you're probably not going to see this on VOD until late January, February. Okay. okay. All right. So, uh, yeah, because originally we were going to release it a little bit earlier, but decided against that. Yeah, get through the Christmas holidays and, you know, so that Elizabeth Blue doesn't get lost in, in the shuffle of everything exactly. coming out for awards for the awards campaigns. Yes, exactly. Oh, so, Vincent, yeah. this, so this has been just an absolute joy having you on the show this morning. Unfortunately, I have to let you go so that I can bring another director on. But please, will you come back on the show? I would love to have you back, especially when the film gets out into the bigger world on VOD or DVD Blu-ray. Absolutely. I'd come back anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I mean, 
this is uh, this is fantastic. Thank and you so much. I can't wait to see your next film. <laughs> well, th- well, thank you so much, and you have a wonderful day. You too, Vince. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. And that was Vincent Sabella talking about Elizabeth Blue op- in Theaters Unlimited this Friday. But right now, right now, we're moving on to... I now have joining us a director I have been looking forward to speaking with, in all honesty, for years, Dwight Little. Hello, Dwight. Hi, good morning, Debbie. Welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. Uh, well, I, that's, it's a lot of fun. I have I've been... got a huge reverb on my line, so but I'll do my best. Okay. You sound great on our line. Okay, good. I have to say, I am such a huge admirer of your work. I have been, you know, Murdered 1600. That is still one of my favorite films. Whenever I'm flipping channels, if I see that, no matter what point it is in the film, I must stop and watch. Yeah, that's a cable staple, isn't it? It sure is, and I sure hope you're getting residuals on that sucker. Uh, Yeah, every time it's on, I tell my wife we can go out to dinner. That's that's just it. You know, Marked for Death is another good one, but that one doesn't pop up that often. Not so not as much, no. But then of course, you go from feature films to you have been a staple in television directing for a few decades now. And I mean, you've done The Practice. You did some one-offs with Castle. You did The Finder, Drop Dead Diva, Dollhouse, and of course, one of my all-time favorites, Bones. <laughs> You did. I mean, I have great love for Bones. I don't know if you were listening at the top of the show, but David Boreanaz and I have known each other since he was a mere teenager. We were both living in Philadelphia, and our fathers worked together for almost 40 years. Oh, how fun. I know David's father very well. You know Dave. Dave is one of the sweetest men on the planet, as is his wife, Patty. Um, and they've been part of my life for over 40 years now. Um, well, that is a small world. Uh, so, and I highly suspect that when David started getting into directing some episodes of Bones, I think a lot of it was from paying attention to you as a director, because you are exemplary. Well, I appreciate that. That's very kind. I've known David now for a long time, and I know his parents really well as well. Yeah. Um I mean, it's when both my parents passed away, Dave Roberts was the very first person at the funerals, both times. Wow. Uh, and that just, you know, that that's, those were some of the times where you hold it together until that man walks in. And having mm-hmm. been such a close friend of my father's, uh, wow. that was so I have great affection for the entire Robert slash Boreana's family. <laughs> That's um, great. But now we're here to talk about this new film of yours that I just can't get enough of, The Last Rampage. What it's, a film. Uh, it, it, it's a crazy story, right? Oh, I remember the story of, Gary, of Tyson's prison break. I remember that and story. It made national headlines. It did. Did, although it's oddly under the radar, it's a little surprising to me as I talk to people. Uh, you're kind of the exception. How many people hadn't really heard about it? Uh, but in Arizona, of course, it was huge news. You know, how did this project come to you? I know James Clark wrote wrote the uh, the book about it, and I know he's done. He did the screenplay. How did this find its way to you? especially after so much television, and now this is really your big jump back into film. Yeah, one quick clarification. The the screenplay was by Alvaro Rodriguez. Um, So so James Clark, of course, wrote the book, and the screenplay was by Alvaro Rodriguez. But um, the the, the really quick story is that um, my stepson, Jason Richter, is an actor, and when he was younger, this book was brought to his attention when he was more of an age to play Donnie. Mm-hmm. 
And then it never came together as a movie. And then Jason showed me the book some years ago. And then when I read it, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is really something. And so uh, I did. It took me a while to develop the script. Um, and, and finally, when we got the script ready, that's when we dove in. How do you go about casting a film like this? And not just casting, but the cast that you chose. I mean, you've got Robert Patrick, who is, this is one of the finest performances of his career. You've got Bruce. Yeah, he's something. Oh, my God. You've got Bruce Davison. You've got Heather Graham, Molly Quinn, um, Chris Browning, uh, John Hurd, this, and one of my favorites, William Shockley. Going back to the yeah, days of Do- going back to the days of Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman, um, he's chameleonic in the roles that he can play. He, well, he surprises people because it's not a huge part, but he's so effective um, in what he's doing. I, I will say that um, the, the the first reach out was to Robert because I knew that we needed Gary before we could really start casting the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I had had the good luck to work with Robert three different times um, on the X-Files, on um, the Dust Till Dawn with Robert Rodriguez, mm-hmm. and also on Scorpion. So I, I had a very close working relationship with Robert, and of course I couldn't help but think about him because I knew, I knew him very well for Gary. And I just intuitively knew that he would be able to get this character. And uh, when he read the script, he just called me and said, well, we have to do this. So it did start out of my working relationship with Robert. Wow. So then how do you bring everybody else into this? Obviously, you have to get somebody who will match Robert beat for beat to play uh, Randy Greenewald, the, our co-escapee. Um, in addition to the th- Tyson's three sons. Well, the, the sons, that was a tricky thing because we did read a lot of great young actors. We, we read them, and so uh, we knew, of course, about Alex, um, but they, they all came in really and, and did read for those parts and, and, and won the parts based on their auditions, as did Chris Browning. Be- because Chris, uh, the real Randy Greenwald is a little more heavy set than Chris, mm-hmm. but his presence in the room was so overpowering. We we decided that he he was the right one. Um, you know, Bruce Davison. I've just been a personal fan of. I don't know forever and ever, all the way back to Short Eyes and things like that. So I reached out to him through our casting agent, Marina Rada, and and just took a chance. And, of course, when he knew Robert was already part of it, that was a big enticement because people really respect Robert as an actor. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Bruce, I mean, as Sheriff Cooper, he really makes us feel the weight of the sheriff's responsibility, not to mention his guilt. I mean, Davison is so emotionally compelling that as I'm watching the film, I'm as equally intrigued and riveted on him when he's on screen as I am when Robert's on screen. Yeah, I, I call him, he's the moral conscience of the movie be, because he can't figure out um, in his own mind how this kind of evil moves through the world. And he tries to explain it as best he can to Molly, um, who has her, you know, her own kind of coming of age moment. But even at the end of the movie, Bruce just doesn't quite understand it and thinks he could have done more. Uh, he so he is the the the, the moral kind of a counterweight to to Gary in the movie. He's he's really good. What kind of research did you delve into as you started putting this film together and then working with your cinematographer Rafael Leva to develop the look? Because there are photographs as we see in the end credits. There are photos documenting aspects of the crimes, of the escape. So there are, you know, and it is a true story. So you do have some responsibility to the truth. But how do you go about, did you go about researching and then implementing all of that to create the whole the entire visual palette? 
and construct. Well, in terms of the content, I didn't even want to try to do this movie without the years of underlying research that James Clark had done on the book. Mm-hmm. So, so I had the book as a very detailed um, foundation. And then um, I did look at a lot through the Arizona Star, the Arizona Republic. Um, I looked at a lot of uh, historical reference. There were a few YouTube things around that just sort of showed Arizona in that time period. Of course, we studied the wardrobe of the sheriff, what people wore in those days, Mm -hmm. and and then tried to pretty meticulously put the period together. Um, when it came to the the final visual style, we wanted that, um, I guess what you'd call almost a tobacco rust feeling to this very harsh landscape. And and, Mm -hmm. and then Raphael and I did a lot of tests to to, to create a look before we started shooting. And the, the end result, the visual tone, the tonal bandwidth is beautiful. Even well, these, thank these... you. It, it, he he shot it on an airy um, Alexa, um, and and it has it, it just it does have. We shot it with uh, anamorphic lenses, mm-hmm. and it it really has. Um, I, I kind of think it captures captures the harshness of the world that these people lived in. Mm-hmm. But it also captures. You've got a great juxtaposition with the beauty of the desert. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I that I found that particularly striking is that we also see the beauty of the desert but set against the gritty harshness of the Tyson world and also the bloodshed there is no law that you were not at a loss for bloodshed here well we we tried to balance that as carefully as we could um because we wanted to be um, you know, not cover it up and not sanitize it, mm-hmm. but we didn't want to indulge in it either. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a very tricky balance in terms of what to show, especially, of course, with the family. Yeah, that's and then and then and then with the honeymoon couple, it's um, the honeymoon couple especially is pretty rough. But you know, you also. You and Raphael, you came up with some really interesting angle, camera angles, with which to show a lot of this. And so that it it leaves much to the imagination as we're seeing blood, you know, splattering and just spurting without... Well, you think you've seen more than you actually have. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of what's there, the implication. You, You, in your mind, you do see more than than what's actually there. But I did find it, just on a technical note, um, I found it very liberating that we shot the movie with one camera. And most film and TV shows today are shot with multiple cameras, two, three, four, five different cameras. And there's something very liberating to shoot a movie with one camera. Of course, it's a cost issue, but it also puts all the attention on the composition of, you know, one shot at a time. Mm-hmm. And I think it allows you to really compose and pay attention very carefully to, to what you're putting in the frame. Mm-hmm. Now, with shooting with only one camera, what did that do for you in terms of rehearsal time and preparation as a means to either, you know, cut down on the number of takes you'd have to do or economize with the shots? Did that impact that Well, that that's area? right. You, 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 you have to shoot what you know. You have to cut the sequence really in your head because you're just going to be able to shoot what you need. And I do rehearse very um, thoroughly in advance. So a lot of the dialogue questions and, and the blocking, some of it's been worked out before we get to the floor to shoot. Um, but I only could get the shots that I knew that I would, um, you know, need uh, in the cutting room. And I do have the advantage of, um, you know, however, 80 hours of television or whatever it is that I've done. So I kind of know, you know, what I need. Mm-hmm. How beneficial was it for you then working with Bill Lynch, whom you worked with on Bones? Right. <laughs> 
to bring Bill in as your editor. Since you're doing a lot of editing, you know, in your head as you're going, how was that ebb and flow then when you actually got into the bay with Bill? Or was this a situation because of only one camera? Did you have him on location with you through the shoot? No, he was he was cutting as some of the dailies were coming in, but it's better for me to not have the editor on the set because then he doesn't see any of the real geography of you know where the base camp was and what what you know he I only want him to know the geography out of the film that he sees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what I try and do is assemble the scenes the way I actually saw it. And then Bill is my first, what I call my first audience, because he's not, he doesn't know about the production problems, he doesn't know about the location headaches, he, he doesn't have any of the onset experience. So he's, he's my first audience, my first fresh eyes, and then he can look at it and say, okay, this is what I'm feeling, and this is where I'm a little confused, Or and then we can you know, sort of rebuild the scene. But it, that's the key. The key is that he's completely fresh to it. Wow. And I can see with a film like this, that would be extremely beneficial. Yeah, someone has to not be, oh, my God, that's the day that the the generator broke down <laughs> or that's the day that the actor didn't show up. You know, all those things that don't, it doesn't matter to the audience, and um, and I don't want it to matter to the editor either. Mm-hmm. You know, what was the most challenging part for you as a director to bring this film, The Last Rampage, to life? Because there's so much material that I know you could have incorporated and included. So it ha- well, it was very difficult to get the script down into fighting weight because, <clears throat> as, as you know, we could have done a ten-hour you know miniseries yeah. about this. There's so much material. Yeah, when I first heard about the film, that's the first thing I thought is, oh, it's a film. I was thinking, <laughs> I was, I seriously, I was thinking miniseries, you know, exploring the crimes that led to the incarcerate, the conviction and incarceration, and then the prison break, and the subsequent crimes. Oh, my God. You could do a fantastic 10-hour about this. And, um, of course, that's not what we were doing, but um, it, could, it could be really interesting. Um, so what we had to do is, is get down to the essence of Gary and his boys. And I always felt like, you know, what was universal about this story was this cult-like father figure who who lured his um, his impressionable boys into his you know basically into his mindset until they realized what they were dealing with and by then it was too late mm-hmm. and and I think the the power of fathers and the influence of fathers over sons that to me what I was what I kept coming back to more than more than the true crime of it all, which is important, but I, I thought that was just fascinating, the Gary and his boys. And, of course, then you throw in their mother. And, uh, yes. And, okay, we have a whole new meaning of psychotic. With well, the, she was an enabler, and she oh. she enabled these boys to go down this terrible, dark path, and she... Um, you know, she had her own demons, her own religious uh, fundamentalism that kept her protected from reality. Um, and when reality finally bursts through her bubble and, and she realizes that this baby has been killed, she dissembles because up until then she's she's created a fantasy mm-hmm. about who her husband, in fact, was. And uh, when that bubble gets burst, you see her collapse. And um, I think her, her religion, you know, these were all very Pentecostal. There was a, there's a harshness about the religion in those days, a very, you know, fire and brimstone kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, like to, I like to call it holy rollers. Yeah, they were definitely in that holy rollers school. But um, she, she clung on to that um, 
and then clung on to this mythology about her husband and her boys, um, and then finally it just all collapsed. Mm. You know, I'm curious, Dwight, what, what kind of differences do you find between doing television directing and because you've done, I think the, the bulk of the, your TV work has been hour-long episodics. Um, right. What do you find to be the biggest difference for you personally between a film like The Last Rampage or even Murder at 1600 as opposed to a TV show? Or, is, or isn't there a difference for you? No, it's, it's actually, and I try to explain this to film students who are always asking me, it's actually two different jobs. And um, I know that sounds bizarre, but it really is. Um, when you're working in television, um, you bring your craft and your, your talent and your energy to bear as best as you can on the work, but it's not your work. It, it belongs to the network, it belongs to the showrunner, it belongs to you know, the studio, many times to the stars and the actors, you're there to to do your job and do it really well. But it is not your authorship. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and, and I don't care what television it is, it's, you know, you're if you're doing Breaking Bad, it's really Vince Gilligan's Breaking Bad. It's not, it's even though the directors are very talented. So, um, when I started off in television, I had the great uh, gift of working with Chris Carter and David Kelly and John Wells and then later Hart Hansen. So these people are, you know, monumentally talented, but it is their creative thing, really. And then in a film uh, from Murder 1600 to Phantom of the Opera or Last Rampage or any of the things I've done, that you are in fact the author as if you were authoring a book you every piece of casting every piece of wardrobe every choice the music the title everything is your authorship so i feel that that's a, a different job almost do you have an affinity for one genre or the other i mean you've done comedy drop dead diva but you've done right. you know the thriller TV shows like The X-Files, like Bones, uh, The Finder, Castle, Mystery, The Practice, even as, as a legal thriller. You know, I, right. so I see a, a, you know, a pattern here, but then I also see something like Free Willy, too. <laughs> That's my standalone family movie. <laughs> so, you know, do you have an affinity? Some, are these the kind of projects that really speak to you? Yes, um, I am very drawn to the the mystery thriller. When I was very young, it was all about Three Days of the Condor and the French Connection and Bullet and this kind of thing. And um, you know, LA Confidential later and mo- movies. I, I think mystery is the best way to describe it because when there's a question whether it's a crime or whether it's a, a behavior that nobody understands, then you have a mystery. And once you have a mystery, you have people's interest. So, so thrillers, um, horror, if it's good, um, you know, murder mysteries, crime stories, these are all things that you know, people want to know how, why, what happened, how could this be. So the key to all of it is mystery, I think. Mm. So then I have to ask you, how did you not direct any Murder, She Wrote episodes? <laughs> I, was, I was never actually, I'm not sure that was in, in my wheelhouse when I, when, when was that made? I can't remember. Uh, murder, that may she, be it was still going in the 90s. It was still going in the 90s. Uh, Because my first episode was 1997 when I directed Millennium, 
mm-hmm. um, with Lance Henderson. That was another mystery, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was so. That was my first. Um, so in '97, so I don't be. I don't remember being aware of that. It might have been just before my TV years. I think it because I think it was winding down then, and it was had stopped it as, as a series and was actually just popping up as like a two-hour special three or four right, times a right. year. But, yeah, it's like, okay, you love all these mysteries. One of the seminal mystery <laughs> shows, <laughs> and, and it skipped you. So, you know, you've been doing this for so long now, Dwight. I've got to ask you, what is the gift, the greatest gift that, be it directing a film, being directing TV, what is the greatest gift it gives you that, keeps you going and makes you keep looking for that next project well i think in terms of my own talents whatever they are i think one of them is that you you have to realize that the director is the first audience just like i was saying about bill Mm -hmm. um that's really who you are you're 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 the first audience and and it's up to your instinct to know, um, are you telling this story in an interesting way? Are you on top of these performances? Are you're the storyteller? Um, I do think I have a affinity for actors. I like talking to them. I like what they do, and I'm interested in what actors do. Um, so I think that's a big help. Um, and and I'm very interested in camera, all, although I only want to do that. Third, I, I only want to pay attention to camera, you know, in, in third place. It's script first, mm-hmm. then the actors, and, and then camera. But um, I, I don't know. I still get up in the morning when I get on the set, I get excited. I don't know why I still get excited about trying to make something happen. <laughs> <laughs> and and here you're doing it. You know, Murder in 1600 was, you know, that went on to be a, a blockbuster Halloween 4, part of a massive franchise. You know, and here you have this fabulous indie, The Last Rampage. Do you see yourself now moving into, with feature films, will you kind of hang out in this in this lower budget, the middle budget uh, indie range? Yeah, that's my new space because, you know, clearly the, the business changes every 10 years, well now every couple of years, but it is we are in a in a franchise you know world and and those 100 million dollar movies you know are not in my wheelhouse um and and there's plenty of great talented directors who do those um i feel like i fit better in this smaller space and um so yeah i i have more creative control in the independent world mm-hmm. um and that's where I that's where I'd like to keep working honestly. Well, uh, you know, you get no complaints from me. I will see anything that you direct, Dwight. Anything. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. So now how can everybody see the last rampage? I know it's opening Friday. It is opening Friday. That's just at about 20 select theaters um so it's unlikely that a lot of your audience will be right next to a theater but we are everywhere in the digital universe so however you see movies whether it's dish or direct or voodoo or playstation or itunes or amazon or however it is that you get movies it will be available and then um and then later and January it'll be on Netflix and then later at Redbox so I I think everybody will be able to see it Um, and those who are in New York it's in a it's in a theater there in Chicago Dallas Phoenix LA um, Los Angeles so if you're if you're in any of those cities look at your local guide and and try and see it in the theater but if you happen not to be in one of those cities it's going to be pretty much everywhere. Well, I can't recommend it highly enough and if anybody has read James Clark's book, they'll love the film, go see the film. If you see the film, go get the book. <laughs> well, absolutely. By the way, if you see the film, I agree with you. Go read that book. It's fascinating. And of course, then I will hound you and everybody can hound you to go ahead and make that 10-hour miniseries. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, 
Dwight, uh, we are all out of time today for the show. I can, this has been a real joy for me to get to talk to you. Um, well, thank you for being a supporter of Last Rampage, and thank you uh, for supporting uh, supporting us, and, and we and I really appreciate it. Well, and I hope that you will come back on the show again, maybe when we when this go, hits Netflix or DVD Blu-ray or something, or for your next project. Perfect. Wonderful. Dwight Little, thank you so much. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was the wonderful director, Dwight Little, The Last Rampage, in theaters this Friday and everywhere digitally. So we are all out of time. This comes as no surprise once again. So for Michael Cuesta's interview and everything American Assassin, go to BehindTheLensOnline.net. Probably by tomorrow, everything will be there for you. Uh, Next week, we've got some in-studio guests. Luke Sabus is back with us in person, in studio. And... uh, we ha- we're going to talk some about Princess Morning Glory, Letitia Fairbanks' book that is out and about with her stepdaughter who is handling the distribution and promotion of that. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.